The official SAS to podcast returns for another week in the world of SAS with me, Harry Stebbings, at H Stebbings with two Bs on Snapchat, and brought to you by the main man at SAS to Jason Lemkin, at JasonLK on Twitter, a must-follow for sure there. But to the episode today, and I'm thrilled to have a slight anomaly for the show, a founder representing one of the fastest-growing SAS startups, not in Silicon Valley. So joining me in the hot seat today, I'm very excited to welcome Max Yoda. Max is the founder and CEO at Lessonly, the modern learning software used by teams to translate important work knowledge into lessons that accelerate productivity. They've raised funding from the likes of former Exact Target CMO Tim Kopp, OpenView Ventures, and New York Times bestseller Jay Bear, just to name a few of the impressive figures involved. Fun fact also, they're based in Indianapolis, and so Max brings a fantastic perspective on scaling and operating a growing SaaS business outside of the valley. I'd also have to say a massive thanks to Scott Dorsey at High Alpha and Tim Kopp at Chicago Venture Partners for the intro to Max today, without which this episode would not have been possible. And if you haven't checked out Scott and Tim's episodes, they really are a must. But before we head into the show today, I want to tell you about WePay. WePay helps online platforms increase revenue through integrated payments processing. Constant Contact, Equid, and GoFundMe use WePay. Why? Because WePay uniquely helps platforms offer ROI-positive integrated payments to their users within their UX and without taking on fraud and regulatory exposure. Others make you trade off between UX friction or fraud, not WePay. WePay also offers award-winning support and can even work with your team through Slack or Zen desk. Get the payments revenue you want without getting bogged down every time a user has a payments question. But don't trust me. Visit wepay.com forward slash Harry for a video case study on how Equid grew its revenue while better serving customers with WePay. That's wepay.com forward slash Harry. You'll also be made eligible for a year of free premium support with wepay.com forward slash Harry. And if WePay helps you navigate the world of payments, what about the same for mentorship? Say you hired a bunch of good engineers and the best way to retain them is to have a good leadership in place. That's where Plato can help. Plato is on a mission to help engineers and engineering managers become great engineering leaders by finding them the perfect mentor. Mentors are great engineering leaders working at Google, Facebook, Lyft, Slack, Trello, you name it. And for a monthly fee, you have unlimited mentorship, advice, and coaching from them in order to help resolving challenging management situations as they arise in real time. Simply head over to PlatoHQ.com to check it out. But enough from me, so I'm now thrilled to hand over to Max Yoda, founder and CEO at Lessonly. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Max, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. A big hand to Blake at OpenView and Scott at High Alpha for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today, Max. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's really good to be here. Thank you, Harry. I'd love though to get started with a little bit about you and how you came to found one of the hottest startups not in Silicon Valley in the form of Lessonly. I love that description. Thank you, Harry. So yeah, it's great to be here. I appreciate you having me. I'll take a couple seconds on myself and then I'll get to the good stuff. My name's Max. I graduated from Indiana University in Bloomington in 2010. And after graduation, I started a company called Quipple. It did not work out. Uh, for two years, I spent, let's say, a lot of dimes and made no dimes. So not a great plan. But with that plan, you know, I ultimately had to shut the business down. So I spent a lot of time in bed after that. And I'm getting to the good part now. I'm a super depressive personality. So for me, there's no greater catalyst for uh, not feeling great uh, than totally blowing it in front of all of your friends and family. And with Quipple, that's what I did. But looking back at it now, you know, five years in the rearview mirror, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because it allowed me to start Lessonly and really made it all possible. Why Lessonly? Why did you realize that this was the calling for you? So for everybody uninitiated out there, Lessonly is a 
modern LMS for sales and customer support teams. Uh, and the reason we started it is we wanted to bring kind of a fresh approach to learning at work. So before we wrote any code, we looked at all the learning management systems out there. Some people call them LMSs. And we found that they're really chiefly designed for human resources departments to administer compliance policies and kind of standardized management practices. So in a lot of ways, these offerings were like, I'd say as much about learning as Diet Coke is about dieting. Uh, you can see why they chose the label, but you can also see like what a stretch it is. Mm-hmm. So this got me really, really motivated. Uh, and especially when, you know, we recognized, we started doing interviews with companies and their employees and we recognized how many frontline workers out there were really hacking their way to a clear understanding of their roles. They're really like propped up by a cocktail of inference and shoulder taps, one-off meetings, and I'd say a whole lot of Slack chats, uh, and even more today than when we started doing these interviews five years ago. So we really wondered how these folks felt when they saw that their compliance policies were so well tended to, uh, but their actual workflows and techniques and technology that they needed to do their jobs were kind of left blowing in the wind, hanging out in the ether. So if you fast forward five years from when we started the business, Lessonly turns five in two days, which is super exciting. We've reached nearly a million learners, and we show up every day kind of focused on delivering a learning software that is purpose-built for teams and the way that they capture and use work knowledge, not for compliance policies, not to turn contributors into managers. This is to give frontline employees the access to the fundamental information they need to do great work. Mm-hmm. That makes sense? It does, absolutely. But you mentioned teams there, and you also mentioned a market opportunity. You've clearly identified a market opportunity. I read in, I, I would love to say a well-known paper, and I'm sure it might be, but uh, it was something like Indianapolis Star. I read that uh, in one year you grew 850% revenue-wise from and also from four people in 2014 to 15 in 2015. I'd love to hear them with such rapid scaling. What were the inflection points for you with such a kind of expanding team? Sure. So, you know, 850%, those were the early days. I'd love to keep posting those numbers. (laughs) Yeah, we went from, you know, really, I think about it in three stages. Today, we're just under 70 employees. But when I think about kind of the different epochs or ages in Lessonly, I think about when we went from five to 15 people, and then 15 to 30, and then now, you know, going from 60 to 100 or 120. And the five to 15 stage, I'd say, was all about creating kind of a really focused product and proving that we could bring outsiders into the business. So people who were coming off the street with the resumes, putting them in seats and getting them to hit their quotas repeatedly. And once we did that, you know, the five to 15 stage, we went to the 15 to 30 stage, which was really hard. Uh, When I look back at kind of the hardest time in our existence, that was to me the hardest time because we went from everybody being super agile uh, and on the same page to two people accidentally working on the same thing at the same time, like for the first time. Mm -hmm. And that can be a little bit unnerving when you realize how communication can break down even at such a, you know, for some people, a a 30 uh, person team isn't very big. For me, that was the biggest team I'd ever been a part of. So this stage was all about, you know, scaling the sales org and and there's tons of pains that come with that. But really it was about getting that sales process right and then making sure the product continued to exceed people's expectations. Can I dive in quickly just while we're stuck on two there? You said about the problems with scaling the sales org. What were your key problems that you found with scaling the sales org and and kind of finding that repeatability of sales? Sure. So we had to figure out what type of salesperson we really wanted on the team. And it's not like there's a lot of great people who were signing up to do this job. What we found over time with some trial and error was that we wanted a highly extroverted person who was really impatient. Uh, And we find that by using a a tool called Predictive Index. It shows dominance, extroversion, patience, formality. We really needed to find what our market responded to. And then on the other side of that, who our market actually was. So scaling a sales org is about putting the right people in the right places, but also guiding them to the right opportunities. And in the early days of Lessonly, that kind of laser focus on customer support teams and sales teams, we didn't have it. 
we had this really wide open market opportunity and learning software is really widely applicable. So there was just so much opportunity out there. It became about what we say no to more than, than what we say yes to. So those were two things that, you know, we had to, we had to go through by being very opportunistic in the early days, taking any client that would come. And then over time, we're weaning ourselves off of deals that we just knew weren't the right fit for us. We, those two things are hard when you're bringing new people in the business all the time. We recently had Ashu Gog, a VC at Foundation Capital on the show. Yep. And he said to me that, you know, you've hit product market fit when the average salesperson can sell to the average customer. I'm sure. intrigued. Would you agree with that statement? And when would you say that you really feel product market fit is hit? Sure. I mean, for us, we started bringing in clients who could turn around a deal in a day, you know, our average deal cycle from somebody not knowing they need lessonly to uh, buying it for anywhere between ten to $15,000 a year, which is our average contract size that shot down to about 39 days. So that's when I really felt like we were onto something. People who weren't looking for our software, we can engage them and 39 days later, they'd give us ten dollars to $15,000. Then, you know, looking a year after that, seeing that they would renew at the rate that we were thrilled with, that feels really good. But the earliest indicator is you, you go out to market, you tell somebody that you do something that they didn't even, they weren't even looking for. Because a lot of people aren't looking for an LMS that does the things that I say we do, you know, documenting that work knowledge. They're looking, uh, HR is looking for an LMS for compliance, but the sales leader isn't thinking, hey, I might need my own LMS that's totally different from what HR needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, you know, purpose-built for me. So coming to them and saying, hey, you've got people who need to be on the same page. We've got a piece of software that helps align folks over time, not just on day one, but after onboarding. And as they continue their kind of path productivity that never ends in your company, we can help with that. That's when I really felt like that 30-day sales cycle was a really good indication that we were onto something. You mentioned renewals there. When did you start to implement a customer success team? Oh, I love that question. That was our, uh, our actual fourth hire. So we hired a salesperson as hire number one, uh, and then we brought in uh, a marketing leader and uh, a customer success leader uh, right at the same time. So employees three and four. We had about 23 clients at the time, and I hadn't, it hadn't really occurred to me that those clients you know, were all uh, a churn risk because we brought them in you know, maybe three to six months beforehand, and there's a possibility that six months from now, we're going to have 10 clients instead of 23 because we're not going to take good enough care of them. So we brought in a gentleman to just focus on that full time, and it felt too early for me, but it wasn't too early. It was really the uh, uh, Mike Fitzgerald, who's a board member at Lesson Lee, looking ahead and saying, you want to get ahead of this. You want to make sure that your clients are highly engaged, and Max, your job is to work on the product, and Connor, your job is to sell. So let's bring in somebody here who, who wakes up every day thinking about taking care of our clients, uh, and it was not too early at all. Can I ask, is this a jack-of-all-trades moment of the journey, where everyone's doing everything? Uh, what kind of profiles do you look for? Is it kind of the very jack-of-all-trades, or is it the kind of intense specialist? Yeah, great question. I did not look for an intense specialist. We didn't. We needed somebody who could roll with punches and kind of pick up any task. Our client success person or customer success person had a lot to do with our product development because he was the eyes and ears for what our clients needed. So him kind of just being a specialist around, hey, what I do is is customer success wouldn't have been very helpful for us. We needed him to really be dynamic. And I really just looked for people who were young and ambitious at the time, who you know maybe were looking to learn a lot of things all at once and hadn't yet figured out the one thing that they want to do. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to have you know, a network of folks in Indianapolis uh, through a program called the Or Fellowship that I was a part of where I could pull from that network and know that these people were very trustworthy, really hardworking, and just you know, good souls. You said that about kind of hiring young people. It's interesting because it brings up a question from uh, Scott Dorsey at High Alpha. He says, how do you look to hire a leadership team with more experience than you? And what are the kind of inherent challenges within this process? 
Sure. Yeah. So that happened for us in a big way between the 30 to 60 person kind of jump. And I'll give you an example of it going from generalist to specialist. We had a gentleman named Mitch Causey, who was the first gentleman to come aboard to lead marketing. He was there from the earliest days to 55 people. He's still there now, but he was leading marketing and he was the sole leader of marketing until about 55 people. At that point, he raised his hand and he said, hey, I can get us to our goals, but not in the time allotted, which was really very awesome of him. He effectively self-identified and said, uh, we need to bring a specialist in, somebody who's done this part of the scaling process before because his generalist skills needed some more guidance. And we can all relate to that. So it was a win all the way around. We were able to bring in a gentleman named Kyle Lacey, who's now our VP of marketing. And Mitch stayed as our director of marketing and everyone was happier. The generalist got to learn from the specialist. The specialist gets so much benefit from still having the generalists there. Uh, his tenure and understanding of the market are indispensable. And together they all get bigger bonus checks. So we were able to, you know, one thing I'd say is a lot of people hire early, early hires who are generalists and they give them big titles because it's super exciting for somebody to come in and be a VP of something after having been, you know, a contributor at their last company. I got good advice not to do that in the early days. And that was advice that I would give to anybody. Now you, you slap a VP title on somebody and they have nowhere to go, but down but with Mitch, we were able to give him a director role and he was a, he's just a huge, humble guy. And he was able to say, Hey, I think it's time to hire a VP. And I don't think it's going to be me. Maybe this next role, it'll be him because he'll learn from the VP at this time, but be able to self-identify that was, was a big deal. And then, you know, looking for those people who are specialists, it was, all about timing for us. We have very clear virtues and values that we define and we promote, uh, and they're, they're fundamental to our team. And we just looked out to find people who have the requisite skills that we need, but also share those values and virtues. It's not an easy thing to do, but it's the only way that uh, I've been able to do it so far. You said before, that, in kind of in a similar theme to that marketing analogy, you said before that you love it when you get employees stretching their talents. Tell me, you what, bet. what are your views on hiring stretch VPs? And when's a stretch VP? too much of a stretch. Yeah. So if I could have it my way, I would always want to hire experienced people who have gone through a lot of pain at some point in their career. Because sometimes I think you'll find that there's a, a VP who's somebody you want to hire in a VP role who had great success at this awesome past company. And they maybe never had a, a role at a company where they were in a leadership position where it didn't go so great. I've found that people who have that much experience where they've had a really great a ride at an awesome culture, a big win at a company, and then gone to maybe the next role where the culture wasn't quite there and the leadership team didn't really have the skills that they were used to. Those are the people that are not too cocksure when they enter a company like ours. They have a depth of field that gives them flexibility and approaches, and they kind of have a renewed graciousness for places that truly care about their people and the mission. So while that's a hard thing to look for, it's something that when we're interviewing leaders who are going to come in in VP roles or executive roles, I want to know that they've been at places that haven't worked out because I don't want somebody coming in and thinking that that last magical ride they were, they went on is normal. Mm -hmm. It isn't normal. And uh, that can be a very hard thing to deal with when you haven't ever experienced it. Can I ask, how does your candidate assessment look today and how has it changed? Are there kind of core questions that you would always ask in terms of how, how do you respond to when shit hits the fan? What motivates you? Are there kind of commonalities amongst your interviews, uh, wide ranging across different um, kind of segments of the business from marketing to engineering? Sure. So I, I really look for emotional intelligence. That's a big thing for me and any leader. The, the ability to strategize and create a plan is super important, but being able to empathize with a team and really understand them is and speak to them from an emotional level is like, to me, the ultimate arbiter of a great leader. So when we're doing interviews, we talk a lot about emotions. 
we talk a lot about vulnerabilities and I just like to see how people respond to that. I'm pretty open with things that have troubled me in the past or things that I've felt were kind of catalyzing experiences for me and where at the time they were very negative, but now I look back on them and say, wow, I got a lot out of that. You know, my parents divorce being one, everybody's parents have been divorced by now. So I think probably a lot of people can relate to that. That's a big deal when it happens when you're in fourth grade. So I like to talk about that with folks and see how they respond, you know, see how they emotionally react and then try to get them to share similar stories on their end. And I'm really looking for self-awareness in that case. That is my primary role is finding out how does this person think from an emotional level? And then we bring in a lot of other people on the team to make sure that, you know, they fit other parts of the culture. It is about kind of sharing the interview process. We don't have this nailed. We certainly don't have a model that I'd go out there and write a book about, but it's working well enough. Uh, and I think that's by sharing the responsibility, which absolutely takes more time in the interview process, but is absolutely worth it. And it engenders kind of a culture of kind of extreme transparency and trust, I guess. You bet. Yeah. Appreciation and vulnerability. Those are the two things that I think every leader should have in their vocabulary and be applying. So we're going to go into a quick fire round there now called Max's 60 Second Saster. So I say a short statement and then you give me your immediate thoughts in 60 seconds sure. or less. Sound good? It sounds great. So what hires do you wish you'd made earlier? Uh, user experience designer, for sure. Okay. Why? It's just too important of a role to wait on. You know, you start the product team hiring an engineer and that engineer is the sole person on the product team driving things forward. They are probably not adept at user experience and will probably take some shortcuts that you ultimately end up having to go back and readdress which can be painful. And uh, it, had we brought in somebody, you know, it's not a, it's just, it's just a great resource. They affect every part of the business and we really care deeply about our user experience. So we should put our money where our mouth is. Building a startup, not in the valley, the pros and the cons in, in 60 seconds. That's a tough one. Yeah. So in Indianapolis, I say we have just like a slew of loyal and talented people. And it's not that people in the valley aren't loyal. It's that they get a lot of maybe opportunities that cause them to think maybe in the short term instead of the long term. Uh, we don't have that problem here. You know, there just aren't as many big fish in the pond, which has pros and cons, but it generally means that people are more loyal to their organizations. And then I'd say a con here, I'm not building a B2C company, but if you wanted to build one, it would be very difficult to build here because most of the money that exists around these parts is focused on building B2B businesses. So that leaves a lot of opportunities on the table here that are might, might be very good ones. What do you believe that most around you disbelieve? Yeah. So I think, you know, back to the appreciation vulnerability that I mentioned, it's, it's all about being exceptionally vulnerable as a leader. So you know, put that a different way. Leaders need to be exceptionally vulnerable. I think that engenders a lot of trust in an organization and allows people to bring their whole selves to work instead of just their, their work selves. And I don't really think it's possible to shut off your personal self when you walk in the door at work. How do you deal with it? This isn't on the schedule, but I'm too intrigued. I'm, I'm a slightly depressive personality like you. How do you deal with it when the shit hits the fan? Sure. I think, I think over time it, you start to realize that it's all going to be okay because you see it hit the fan over and over again and you still end up hitting your goals and you still end up growing and you still have very happy people around you. Yeah. But in the early days, it's uh, it's just a lot of worrying. There's such a big pro to being a worrier and such a big con. You're able to prepare and think things through. It shouldn't get to the point where you can't sleep. The con is that you maybe waste a lot of energy on things that never come true. I think over time, I've started to realize that there are always going to be uh, 1,000 things to worry about, and most of them will not come true. So let's focus on just the ones that we know are coming true and just triage those. And, uh, and if it's not coming true, if we don't feel it happening, uh, try to get it out of your mind. So exercising, great way to do that. I take naps every day. Great way to keep myself sane and stable. And I also try to eat well, which, you know, sounds very benign, but not enough people are doing it, if you ask me. What's your favorite SaaS reading material? What do you learn from the most? Rainy day, hot chocolate, what's Max curling up with? I love listening to uh, or reading Fred Wilson's blog, abc.com. I've been doing that for as long, for about seven to eight years, and it continues to deliver. Mm -hmm. What do you know now? Final one. What do you know now 
that you wish you'd known at the beginning of your journey with Less Than Me? It's going to work out great. I think I would have saved myself a lot of sleepless nights. It's just one of those things where it always works out. You know, with Quipple, I overly worried about it failing and it did and it was fine. With Less Than Me, it could go either way and it's going to be fine. It's just one of those things that with time, you start to be a lot more sure of. I want to finish so today and we're moving out of the quick fire, so no worries on the 60 seconds. With okay. an aspect very kindly suggested by Scott Dorsey again, brilliant man, who uh, said about Less Than Me successfully layering on services on top of a core platform. I'd love to hear what are your learnings from this and when the right time to add not additional features but additional complexity to the business was. Sure. So yeah, we only launched services this past, when we started uh, Q2, which just ended uh, a couple days ago, we had uh, no services offering. And we spun up that services offering in the first 30 days of Q2. And by the end of uh, of Q2, it contributed about one seventh of our overall uh, ARR, which was incredible. Nobody, I mean, I, I think I'm being honest here, nobody expected it to go that well. What we found was people were really hungry to get their learning programs right. And they were willing to pay even more than they'd pay for software to get that done. They just wanted to help hand, they wanted a guiding hand, and they wanted somebody there to, you know, if you think about DIY software, they wanted us to do it. Uh, they didn't want to do it themselves. And there's parts of that that work out great in certain organizations, and there are parts of that that we need to keep on the shoulders of the teams who are buying the software, because only they know certain parts of their organization, and only they can do some of the things in our software. But there's a lot of stuff that we can help them with. So our services offering opened that up, and we began by pricing it pretty aggressively to see what people think. And then over time, we, you know, we, we just raised that price and have found that there's a high tolerance for, for help. And there's a lot of companies out there who are willing to spend, you know, twice the ACV to have that help. How do you know when the right time is to add this complexity, though? When you look at the journey, why why now? And how do you kind of navigate the process of adding complexity to a a core product? Sure. Yeah, you have a great board. And that board has seen the movie before. And that board recognizes that you uh, have an opportunity that you might not be tapping. And they put that opportunity on the table and they say, Max, we think this is something you should do. And they keep saying it board meeting after board meeting when when I don't listen right away. Then ultimately, I listen and I regret not listening earlier. Final question for you. How does the board dynamic work between, as you said, a board who've done it before, very experienced, incredible advice. And then also for you, as you said, it's five years, I think. So you started this yep. when you were 22, uh, probably had a first board meeting at 23, 24. Sure. I think you have to have people who themselves, you know, those, those senior people at the table, they have to remain uh, humble. Uh, they need to come in and be comfortable with me running the business, not them. Cause you know, a lot of, in our case, we have a lot of operators on the board and so those operators probably could run this business as well or better than I can. Uh, but over time, they have just allowed me to get comfortable. And they have, I think what, what a great board does is they seed ideas a year before you actually need to execute on them. So that by the time it, by the time you get to the point where you, you see the opportunity, you feel like you've come up with it yourself. So to give you an example, when I was speaking to one of our board members, Mike Fitzgerald, he was like, hey, Max, a year from now, you're probably going to have about 25 people and you're going to need to be thinking about X, Y, and Z. And that shocked me because I was like, 25 people, Mike, we have 10 right now. Like I couldn't imagine the organization at 25 people. Uh, But Mike started talking about that a year before it was coming true and planted some ideas in my head about things I would want to consider and and people I'd want to hire and processes I'd want to put in place. And by the time those 25 people were rolling in the door, I felt like Mike's idea was my idea and I took ownership of it and I got it done. And I came back to Mike and said, Hey, isn't this great? And Mike just, you know, smiled and said, really good thinking, Max. Um, I think that is a great board member. Max, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show and hear the incredible journey with Lessony. I look very forward to having you on in a year's time uh, when I'm sure you'll be at 150 people. Um, So thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, it's great talking to you, man. I appreciate you making time. 
Fantastic to have Mattis on the show there and some very exciting times ahead for him and for Lesson Lee and so appreciate him opening up the way he did. And you can follow him on Twitter at Max Yoda, Y-O-D-E-R. That'd be fantastic. Likewise, you can follow us on Snapchat at H Stebbings with two Bs. I'd also like to say a huge thank you again to Tim Cop and to Scott Dorsey for the intro today, without which this episode would not have happened. But before we leave you today, I want to tell you about WePay. WePay helps online platforms increase revenue through integrated payments processing. Constant Contact, Equid, and GoFundMe use WePay. Why? Because WePay uniquely helps platforms offer ROI-positive integrated payments to their users, within their UX and without taking on fraud and regulatory exposure. Others make you trade off between UX friction or fraud, not WePay. WePay also offers award-winning support and can even work with your team through Slack or Zendesk. Get the payments revenue you want without getting bogged down every time a user has a payments question. But don't trust me. Visit WePay.com forward slash Harry for a video case study on how Equid grew its revenue while better serving customers with WePay. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. You'll also be made eligible for a year of free premium support with WePay.com forward slash Harry. And if WePay helps you navigate the world of payments, what about the same for mentorship? Say you hired a bunch of good engineers and the best way to retain them is to have a good leadership in place. That's where Plato can help. Plato is on a mission to help engineers and engineering managers become great engineering leaders by finding them the perfect mentor. Mentors great engineering leaders working at Google, Facebook, Lyft, Slack, Trello, you name it. And for a monthly fee, you have unlimited mentorship, advice, and coaching from them in order to help resolving challenging management situations as they arise in real time. Simply head over to PlatoHQ.com to check it out. As always, I so appreciate all your support, and I look very forward to bringing you next week's episode.